on the air and streaming on the web since 1996. This is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again. I'm Jason Drury, welcoming you to another of our special film, TV and video game composer interviews on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Today's guest is film and video game composer Austin Wintory. Austin grew up in Denver, Colorado and from the age of 10 was utterly addicted to film music. After teaching himself to compose, orchestrate and conduct in high school, he went on to study classically at NYU and USC. Following a whirlwind education in which he scored well over 150 student and small independent productions, he graduated and began working full-time in Los Angeles. In 2012, Austin's soundtrack for the hit PlayStation 3 game Journey became the first ever Grammy-nominated video game score, also winning two BAFTAs, along with five Game Audio Network Guild Awards, and a host of others. Austin's score for Flow made him the youngest composer ever to receive a BAFTA nomination, and also won a wide variety of other game industry accolades. Austin has also scored over 50 feature films, and when his first major film score for the Sundance Film Festival winning film Captain Avril Reed was shortlisted for the 2009 Academy Awards for Best Original Score by the LA Times. His next major film, Grace, was also a hit at the Sundance Film Festival. Austin's score for the film was also highly lauded, earning a notorious Bangora Chainsaw Award nomination. His most recent films include Standoff in 2015 starring Lawrence Fishburne and The Wonderville in 2016 starring Stana Katik. Also passionate about education, Austin Wintory is a regular public speaker at schools and events around the world, in addition to pre-concert talks and workshops. He also serves on the board of directors for the non-profit Education for Music in Los Angeles, as well as the board of directors for the Society of Composers and Lyricists. In March 2021, via Zoom for the Cinematic Sound Radio Network, I had the pleasure of talking to Austin Wintory. In part one of his two-part interview, we talk extensively about his work on video games and how he chooses his assignments, as well as playing samples of his wonderful music. But I started the interview by asking Austin how his interest in music began. It's interesting because it was very circuitous. I had no interest in music before the age of 10, very much into storytelling. I, I wouldn't have used that term back then. That's one of my hindsight 
connecting the dots type conclusions. I love comics. I love novels. I love movies. I love video games. I realized I just loved the art of storytelling. And so I, I found myself with a kind of very peripheral love of music in those contexts. You know, I had a vinyl, for example, of the original Star Wars A New Hope, and I wore it down to dust. But I couldn't have even told you the name John Williams. To me, it was a music of Star Wars. It wasn't a music of John Williams for Star Wars. It really existed only as an offshoot of my love of those films. And, you know, same thing with Indiana Jones and things like that of that time period. So I had a love of those things very indirectly. And then basically I found myself in a situation where I was set up with a piano teacher and he was this not traditional piano teacher who said, we're going to start with scales. We're going to move on to some Mozart. And then we're going to eventually, you know, try to upgrade to some Beethoven and some Bach and, and Brahms and whatnot. He just said, what do you want to learn? He was a jazz musician primarily. In fact, he had even been a composer working in L.A. back in the 70s doing ghostwriting on things like Barnaby Jones in the streets of San Francisco. And he came from a kind of Alf Clausen model of composer. You know, he was sort of sort of a jazz and big band guy at heart. But he could do a lot of different things. But that's very much where his soul was at its most powerful and similarly, as a pianist, he, he had his own eight-piece little, not big band, but sort of a jazz combo that he would play around Denver with. And when it came time to teach idiot kids like me, his attitude was, what do you want to learn? I, I'll happily, if you want to focus on classic music, we do that. You want to learn jazz, we can do that. You want to learn pop songs, you know, you want to learn whatever's on the radio today. You know, we can get a hold of some music or I can just transcribe it by ear for you and we can just learn what, whatever. I'm here to just help you achieve whatever your goal is, basically. In hindsight, exactly the kind of teacher that I needed. If I'd had one of these stereotypical, we're going to focus on scales, I would have bailed. I would have lost interest because I was always much more independent and more interested in kind of finding my own way into things and self-teaching to a degree. But the funny thing was because I didn't really listen to music very much. I knew I liked the piano. I liked music in this abstract sense, but I didn't listen to albums uh, ever, really. It wasn't part of my, my diet. So he said, tell you what, I'll, I'll play some of my favorite music for you and you see what you think of it. And, and he showed up with a stack of Jerry Goldsmith LPs and it was scores like Patton, A Patch of Blue. I particularly remember those two uh, and Papillon. In fact, it, it always strikes me as funny that it's A Patch of Blue, Patton and Papillon because I'm convinced that he alphabetized his records and just grabbed randomly from the, the high end of the P's. So he uh, exposed me to Jerry Goldsmith and it was like instant conversion. I had no idea that this was a thing. I had no idea that people wrote music. First off, that could sound like this, that could have this kind of electric creativity that is exploding with vitality and curiosity and surprises. And the fact that someone could do this as a job, something vaguely reminiscent of a normal job. In fact, this particular composer, he's even still alive and doing it today. You know, this was obviously almost 30 years ago. And so I became this ravenous obsessor, particularly about Jerry Goldsmith. But I very quickly, you know, expanded into just wanting to know anything and everything. I was one of those people getting Lucas Kendall's newsletter, eventually called Film Score Monthly. You know, I was like, I just became this ravenous consumer. And then I started going to used record stores and do chores around the house and then go buy Verez CDs and Trotta CDs and became obsessed. And then not long after that, when the internet started to really kind of become more stable of a thing and eBay was created very quickly, I was that guy who was 
staying up till three in the morning so I could bank my bid at the last second to get that full, complete version of Inner Space or whatever. A score that I don't even think is Snot Cherry's best. I somehow have like five versions of that. I have every commercial and every bootleg I think that exists of that score and I never listened to any of them uh, because I just became this fanatic collector. And so then it was, yeah, my whole life became, how do I position, what choices can I make to allow myself to pursue this for a living? And just went from there, I guess. How did you manage to get involved in the media industry? Uh, well, I conclusion I came to early was I should be living wherever people who make the stuff I want to work on live. So LA seemed like the only real option. When I was finishing high school, I, I looked for colleges on the basis of the caliber of their film programs, not the caliber of their music programs. However, unsurprisingly, some of the um, schools with the best film programs tend to also have the best music programs anyway. So I targeted NYU and USC, and, and it was funny because USC said, we'll let you into the university, but we're not sure we want to let you into our music school. And so I was initially turned down from the second phase NYU, on the other hand, said, we'll take you. So I said, sign me up. So having, having never even been to the East Coast, I moved to Manhattan and lived there for two years. I also very quickly got, you know, I thought, I, I don't think New York is a place I want to live much longer. So I applied to transfer to USC, figured, oh, I'll try again. And actually, by that point, I guess I'd gotten my shit together sufficiently because USC let me in. So I managed to transfer. And while I was at these schools, I managed to meet some student filmmakers and, and such that ended up being the, the seedlings of my career. In particular, there was a filmmaker I met at USC named Amin Matalka, who was looking for a student for his AFI thesis short film. And he um, asked me to do that. And while I was doing that, he was shooting his first feature film, which was called Captain Aburad. And we were able to work on that film just a couple months after I graduated from school so you know it was barely it was just days after my 22nd birthday and i was conducting at warner brothers you know nice good sized maybe 50 piece orchestra for this film that ended up being a film that you know won sundance that year and was shortlisted for the oscars and foreign film category and things like that and so i had this incredibly lucky filmmaker relationship just by the dumb luck of both being students at the same time and then Somehow, I also, in parallel to that, met a student video game designer, and I didn't even know that you could study video games in schools. In fact, ironically, what I didn't know is that this student was in the first ever class, you know, it was the inaugural class of the video game master's degree program at USC, and his name is Genova Chen, and we did um, his student thesis project called Flow, which Sony discovered and said, we'd like to hire you to turn that into a PlayStation game. And so before I even graduated, I had the great luck of launching a PlayStation game. And of course we, we stayed close. And a couple of years later, he said, you want to work on our next game, which was journey and journey was, you know, this just exploded beyond all expectation and, and, you know, radically transformed the kinds of opportunities I was having basically overnight. So the short version to your answer to your question, I could have just said it all started in 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 university for me by by just dumb luck of me being a student at the same time as other people who um, who gave me some really um, incredible opportunities.
You mentioned Journey there, and I think it was your score for the game Journey that put you on the awards mapping around 2012. Tell us how you went about scoring Journey. How I went about it? It was a long process. What's, what's crazy to think, so next year, 2022, will be the 10th anniversary of the release of Journey. But what's funny is that I started writing that score 12 years ago. Like it was a full three years of work to write that. They hired me at the beginning of 2009 and we shipped it in March of 2012. And so it's actually quite difficult to summarize how I went about it because Journey came out when I was 27 and I realized I had this thought one day that I've worked on this game for like 14% of my life. By a, by a factor of percentages, it, it became this point where I was actually worried about having something akin to postpartum depression when it would come out because I had developed such this comfort with working on it every day that the idea of no longer working on it felt scary. I, I thought I don't want it to come out. I, I love I love just working on it all the time. General overview I can I can offer is that Genova would describe a moment of the game and say, okay, here's sort of what we're trying to achieve. And he would usually it was always about emotions. It was never about this is where the player learns the big secret or the anything. It was never about narrative or plot or anything or even character because the game is much more abstract than that. It, it, there is no concrete. There's no dialogue. There's no text of any kind. It's purely experiential. The character just walks through this environment and you're supposed to take from it whatever you take from it. I mean, it's it's actually astonishing that for a game as unabashedly sort of poetic as it is, that it was as commercially successful as it is be, because it, it doesn't spoon feed you much of anything. And so he would describe in emotional terms only, oh, I want it to feel like this. It would, he would say things like, I want it to feel lonely here, but with a little burst of energy periodically that feels like optimistic excitement. You know, it's not lonely followed by bursts of anxiety. It's lonely in a soft way, not crushing sadness. It's a, it's a wistful loneliness. I mean, he, that's the way he would speak to me. And so then I would go and I'd write a piece of music that we would just just like a simple little free form, like two minutes of here's my attempt to create that emotion, not to picture, not to anything, just, just here's a piece of music. And then we would put it in the game and make it so that it would loop. As long as you're in that sort of part of the game, it would just play this piece of music over and over. We could then play the game and see how does the interaction of this music and this gameplay feel. And so we would make all kinds of discoveries. You know, I would say, oh, well, you know, the loneliness, it actually feels really depressing and the gameplay is actually not so depressing. So I'm going to make some tweaks to that. I'm going to make some improvements. I'm going to, you know, and then also things like these happy accidents would occur where I'd bring in a melody right as I walked around the corner and revealed this landscape or something. And I think I really liked the way that the music just happened to catch this thing that I did voluntarily, I wonder if I can make sure that the music will do that every time so that every player will have that experience. So then start really getting our hands dirty on the nature of how interactive the music is and how wrapped around 
the player's experience it is. And it's not just a loop of music that plays crudely, but it's actually choreographed with the player's movements and it's looking for feedback from them before knowing what to do. It's just, just the nature of the art of interactive music. So then I would revise the music and, and then they'd put the revision in the game. And then the other thing that would happen is they would make changes to the game inspired by the music where they'd say, oh, like, like when, I, when I said, oh, this feels crushingly sad and the game is actually really fun. Instead of me saying the music should be a little less lonely and a little less depressing and maybe add a little bit more optimism and uplift to it. There'd be times where in, in, they wouldn't let me do that. And they'd say, actually, we think we need the, to make the game feel more depressing. You're making us realize that we're off, not you. And so it was a very, very back and forth, back and forth. Plenty of times I was chasing them. They were chasing me. And, and we just felt our way through this for three straight years, basically. And uh, then finally we were done. And at the end of it, I thought, I don't know if anyone's going to like this game, but I do feel that we made the game we were trying to make. It was one of those rare instances where I played the finished title and I thought, I think this does what we hope. And rarely do you feel that way. Almost always you just pick it apart instantly and you think, oh, well, you know, I wish we had more time. I, I, I don't like the way that I wish I'd had one more take with the orchestra here. And then there's a million little cracks in the foundation, you know, but this one seemed to avoid that somehow by some miracle. It just seemed like we had the time we needed. We were lucky. Sony was, we were way over schedule. It was never supposed to take three years. Sony was very gracious in letting us continue because they, they were very frustrated by how behind schedule we constantly were. But they, they could have canceled the game. A lot of games that happens to where they just say, this isn't working out. You guys are taking too long. We're not convinced you're ever going to reach the finish line. So we're pulling the plug. That happens routinely. Probably half of all games get canceled, if not more than half, to be honest. I mean, it's, it's a brutal industry in some regards. And they didn't do that to us. So credit to them. And they were, of course, amazing support as well. I worked very closely with their music department. It was an amazing experience. It was one of those where I know it was very hard on the rest of the team. There was a lot of tension. Everybody was, you know, it was kind of like cabin fever. They just reached a point where everyone was driving each other a little bit crazy just by nature of how the world works. But I loved every day of it. <laughs> I was like, I get to work with these brilliant geniuses and the game they're making is a game that I feel needs to exist. I've been a gamer my whole life. And when they first described the goal of the game, I thought, I've been waiting my whole life for somebody to make a game like this. I didn't know it, but... Now I realize I've been longing for this. i
uh, to be honest, I'm not a gamer. I won't and hold it against you, I promise. That's a good thing. <laughs> I did not know much at all about uh, video game music until I met my good friends Eric Woods and Rob Daniels. And when I first heard it, I thought, wow, the music was of film music quality. And now I'm just so much a fan of game music. I am of uh, music for film and TV. It's of such high quality. You know, it's one of those things where for a long time, there was a big generational divide associated with games because the early days of games had such technological restriction that it was impossible to record any music. Initially, you know, games were 100% hardware based. And what that meant was when you made a game, you didn't create visual art. You didn't create music in the recorded audio sense. What you shipped, like that little cartridge that you would put in your Nintendo or your Commodore 64, that was software that contained the instruction. It was basically the equivalent of shipping a recipe book. And the system, the Nintendo system itself, was the ingredients. So you were plugging the recipe into the ingredients and on your screen appears the cake. And the result of which was that the only sound, the only way you could make music was whatever the Nintendo physically itself could make what we now refer to as chiptunes because it was built around the, the hardware synthesis that was going on within the, the actual software, the audio chips in the equipment. And so what happens is you have a bunch of kids who are playing this and because they have no metric for comparison, they're not comparing it to like Von Karajan conducting Beethoven symphonies with the Berlin Philharmonic or something. They just hear the music and they take it at face value in that wonderful, innocent way in which a kid does. And because these composers were often really, really technically savvy composers writing shrewd counterpoint and harmonics, like harmonic vocabulary that was astonishingly sophisticated and rhythmically very progressive and very often very genre bending. But the problem was, if all you ever listened to was what was going on in the rest of the world, all that you could really hear is beeps. And if you were a kid who's only ever heard beeps, it was like having the babble fish in your ear from Hitchhiker's Guide, where you just saw it for what the composer intended and there was no judgment. And so for a long time, there was this, oh, video game music is intrinsically immature because it's not sophisticated. And it was like, there was a bias being placed against it because it was aesthetically unappealing. If you were used to the nuance of an orchestra or the this, the, the range of colors that an orchestra can provide or, or a jazz band or even a rock band, right? Or, or funk band or something like just the sheer dynamic range and coloristic range of the music was so much wider than what that music could do then that people overlooked how compositionally brilliant it was. But there was this little nucleus of a fan base that said, I think there's something here. And fortunately, a subset of those were also young musicians and composers. You know, I grew up somewhere in the middle because I played those games and I would listen to the music and I would say, oh, there's some really cool music here. I'd really like it. But then I'd go put on a Jerry Goldsmith CD and I'd say, oh, well, this is the, this is the good shit, though. And I would really and to me. So especially when we entered into the 16 bit era and things started to become a little bit more about MIDI. And so it started to sound like fake orchestra. And so around that PlayStation one and Sega Genesis era of the mid 90s, I started to actively not like video game music because it was clearly trying to sound like an orchestra, but it still didn't have the technical capability of being an orchestra. And meanwhile, I'm listening to Bernard Herrmann and Jerry Goldsmith and Danny Elfman and James Horner. And, and I was going, that's 
that's what an orchestra sounds like. And when I listen to Final Fantasy V, I think that's just not, I'm distracted by the sound quality of it like anybody else. So I was always kind of a, an odd blend that uh, sort of appreciated some aspects of it and also was a little bit dismissive of others. And then eventually I, I came to realize, you know, even that which sounds bad aesthetically is brilliantly written. And, and you know, Final Fantasy is a particularly unique example because they knew it and they started doing live concerts and like live album recordings of the orchestral proper orchestrally performed music that originally in the actual game is a fake orchestra. And then when you hear it through the real orchestra where it's note for note the same, but performed by, you know, an 80 piece orchestra, you realize, holy crap, okay, this is great writing. <laughs> and uh, there's some absolutely gorgeous stuff here. Excellent. Now, as you said, it took you nearly three years to compose a score for Journey. How long does it usually take you to compose a score for a game? And how do you choose which particular games you want to work on? Well, those are two very different questions. Uh, I, first off, the, the amount of time it takes varies widely, but generally speaking, games uh, hire composers earlier in the process, and the process itself takes longer than films. So, you know, if I routinely have to do a movie in a four to eight week period, I've only one time ever had to do a game that fast. Every other game... I've done was minimum 10, 11 months and the high end is three plus years. So it, it, and I would say that two years and change is probably, I would say a year and a half to two and a half years. That range is what the majority of my projects have been, which is wonderful because in many cases, it's not like I'm writing nine hours of music and you're just battling the clock even for that long. It's you have the time to write the right music and not just the music itself. But of course, I spend at least half my time figuring out how to make this music interactive and truly married to the gameplay experience, which involves a lot of playtesting of the game and, you know, getting a copy of it and playing it with the team and saying, OK, the tempo of this is a lot slower than I was expecting. I think some of the music is going to feel like it's overly energetic to the nature of the, the, the actual experience of playing this game. You know, it, it's kind of like sometimes you start writing in film terms. It would be sometimes we start writing based around a script and then we start getting footage and we realize, Ooh, this is a lot slower pace than we thought. So this music isn't going to work. You know, things like that, where you, the, the act of playing the game makes me come to these realizations and I end up throwing out large piles of music and that sort of thing. So, uh, so yeah, long and short of it, it's a couple of years, uh, give or take. Uh, most often I'm, I'm wrapping up a game right now, for example, that they hired me in October of 2019. So that's, you know, right on basically at a year and a half. Um, how I choose to say yes or not is overwhelmingly it's two different factors. It's who am I working with? You know, for example, if it's someone I've worked with before and I consider them a friend and someone I really care about, I'll say yes, no matter what they're making, because I always prefer to work with people that I have a history with. Uh, it's not that I prefer it. It's that I will always be loyal to people that I have a history with. It's not that I don't like working with new people because your <laughs> your career will you will you'll die very fast if you're not looking for new partners and new collaborations. It's so it's not like that. It's just that I I put a lot of stock into repeat collaborations. I I consider that a profound statement from their end that they would be willing to entrust something to me more than once. That it went well enough that they would want to continue working together. So I consider 
that to be such a profound statement on their part that I really want that to reflect that back at them and say, it means the world to me that we're, that we're at it again. So it doesn't matter to me what kind of music we're talking about. It doesn't matter to me what kind of project, film, game, whatever. I will always have a big, strong soft spot for those kinds of scenarios. Um, the other major consideration, though, is uh, what kind of music does it allow me to, to explore? You know, where those things that feel like, ooh, this is a chance to write something that I've really never written before is always going to be extra exciting is something that I, I really aspire to. My little catchphrase for myself is that when I finish a project, I want to look back at the music I've just written and go, I didn't know that I knew how to do that. I, I genuinely did not know that I could write this at the beginning. And now I'm surprised to discover that it, this is what came out of me. Like, for example, if someone shows me a project and they say, you know, is this something that might interest you? And my first instinct is to go, I have no idea what to write. That I, I, I'll practically beg them for the job immediately because I, if not knowing what to do means that this thing is avoiding cliches and it's sort of existing in some interesting novel place. Cause if it's just paint by numbers and it's like, Oh, okay. It's one of those. So it needs X, Y, Z. Well, that's automatically uninteresting, right? That's sort of intrinsically boring. And so when it's, you know, I look at it like journey, you know, journey struck me in terms of, I knew what the theme needed to be, but there was a lot of mystery about how to actually score this. And, you know, pathless was another one of those where I looked at it and I said, I don't really know what this needs at, at first glance. And that's so exciting. Uh, Cause that act of discovery is sort of the thrill of composing that, that is the, the actual thrill itself. So, yeah, I, uh, I, I think those are the primary factors. It's not to say that obviously the practical realities of, you know, how much time do we have? Do the logistics of this make sense? You know, like if somebody comes to me and says, we really want a grand, magnificent, huge orchestral score, and we have 50 bucks to do it with, uh, you know, it's like, well, I'm kind of being set up to fail. Can I maybe interest you in a different direction, a different creative direction, because I'm not interested in doing a bad job. So, you know, there are occasionally things like that that will intervene, but, but most often it's, I look for the creative challenge. What can I learn from this project? Not just about music, but about myself and about game design or filmmaking or storytelling in general, you know, those kinds of questions. And, and a lot of projects, even, even things that you can tell they're not very good, they still probably have something to teach you. This is where I am so lucky that I fell so in love with Jerry Goldsmith so early because he would show such growth and such musical adventurism on just garbage films, just unwatchably bad movies. And as, as Richard Kraft put it, Jerry always scored the movie that the producers thought they were making. And I, I've always loved that idea. And so I, I'm, I don't actually, sometimes I'll say yes to a thing, even though I'm going into it going, I know this isn't very good. I try not to do that. Of course, You'd, like, cause it's such an emotional drag to, it's such a, it's like a headwind for an airplane where if you're working on something and you just know it's damned from the beginning, you do feel the opportunity cost of that. You do feel like I'm sinking a lot of time into a thing that I know no one's ever going to see or play. And after a certain point, that starts to feel like a very unnecessary use of time and energy. But at the same time, if I look at a thing, I go, look, I know it's not very good, but they want me to do, they're, they're interested in a certain type of music that no one's ever asked me to write before. And so, I feel the need to do this. I want to explore. So it's, you know, it's hard. In other words, it's, there's no rule. And I think an example of you doing that in your work is your 
very unusual score for Assassin's Creed Syndicate in 2015, where you utilised the world of, of oldly London mm. in the 19th century. How did that concept come about of you doing that for the game? Well, that one was actually one that's it's funny because I, I had such an absolutely magnificent time on that project. And yet it was one where I felt very strongly that I knew exactly what to do at the beginning. And I thought they're never going to go for this, though, because it represents a giant departure from the rest of this franchise. And they're going to feel like, ah, it's too off brand. And they loved it. And so I they just set me loose. You know, I, I, I did virtually no revisions or rewrites on that entire score. I mean, for almost every cue was version one because they just said, just just go, just do it, just go crazy. So, uh, there were a few components to it. But first and foremost, it was, this is a game where you play a, a master assassin who can, you know, disappear into the shadows and climb up buildings in a kind of parkour way that looks so effortless and then vanish and, and make these, you know, stealthy assassinations with total ease. And I said, this is not a juggernaut. I, I think some big lumbering orchestral approach is going to feel like a sledgehammer. And what we want is like a rapier. This is something that must move with precision and can make hard turns left and right. And, or even like a dagger, you know, like a tiny, a tiny little pinprick. I, I said, I, I really feel this should be a chamber score where you feel like you're listening to you know, just a few violins, violas and cellos and a few other instruments. And you're listening to them from mere inches away where it's not a big sound. It's a visceral kinetic sound. I said, have you ever listened to a violin from two inches away? It sounds like someone sharpening a knife. That's what I think this should be. And that's what I think these assassins are. Add to that, that the game is about this twins, this brother and sister. And you play as both characters, Jacob and Evie Fry. And they're they're both you know in like their early 20s or so i can't remember their exact age but they're very young they might even be like 19. their their point is that they are playing you're playing as characters who are who are young and exceptionally kind of cocksure you know they're basically arrogant because they know that they are such gifted assassins that no enemy or rarely do enemies pose something that they would think of as a threat so i said what if it's not just chamber music but it's chamber waltzes and things like that to give it a kind of sarcasm so that when you get into a fight instead of it being like some scherzo that's supposed to be all about energy and excitement it's this where it's it's like he's looking down or she's looking down their noses at this enemy and it it's a shame that this represents a fight for you because this is a joke to me and i i, I like the idea of condescendingly looking at at my enemies you know what most games work very very hard to make if there if it's the kind of game that has enemies and you know like because obviously journey for example is no such game but if it's a game like this where you're constantly involved in combat most of the time we work very hard as game developers to make that exciting and make it challenging which means that threats must feel earnestly threatening and so my pitch was what if it's the opposite? What if they're just not threatening? We Because our characters are so full of themselves. And I really didn't think they'd go for that. And they they loved it. They they absolutely said, you know, sign here. We need approximately two hours of waltzes. Because I, I wrote something like three and a half hours of score for that game. And a huge swath of it are these combat waltzes. And so it was an absolute dream. It was one of those just blasts of a 
of a heavenly uh, experience, top to bottom.
Yes, Assassin's Creed is a really an amazing score, particularly in the context of the game, as you say. But another score which really blew me away musically as a non-game fan, but a music fan, was your score for Absu in 2016. Uh, thank when you. When I first heard it, astonished me and its sheer beauty. How did you go about scoring Absu? How is the music used in relation to the game itself? So the story with that was Matt Nava had been the art director on Journey. He was responsible for how it looked, how the character looked, and Journey was very, very acclaimed for its visuals. Matt really is, I think, one of the top artists in the whole of the game industry. So I was over the moon when he surprised me with a phone call not long after Journey came out and said, I've left that game company, which was the name of the studio that made Journey. I founded my own company. So I am now the creative director of a company called Giant Squid. The first game I want to make is a game called Abzu. And here's some paintings or some concept drawings that I made of the world. And, it, and I immediately was shown these images of a diver in this kind of fantastical underworld environment. And, you know, I have a lot of experience as a scuba diver, and so does Matt. He and I worked really closely and, and had a strong camaraderie during Journey, even though he was not the creative director, so he was not technically my boss, as it were. Uh, he and I riffed a lot. You know, I was very inspired by the art he was making, and he was telling me that he was using the music as a big inspiration for the art. So we were kind of a little bit of a feedback loop in Journey. So I was all too excited when he started his own company, and Abzu looked really promising and and he had this very open-ended, just, I have no idea what it needs musically. Just anything that you think is right, let's hear it. Which was the same way Journey had been. One of his ideas was that this, I want this game to just teem with life. Journey was all about deriving emotion from how lonely and isolated the game makes you feel. And he said, I want Abzu to be the precise opposite of that. As you navigate the environment, it's just overflowing with fish and sharks and manta rays and octopus squid and all kinds you know just actually i don't think there's any octopus in the game but squid and giant big fin tuna and i mean it's just like orca whales and and even plesiosaurs and things that are extinct now you know it's a sort of a fantasy environment fantasy and almost borderline sci-fi but similar to journey it's done a very poetic non-dialogue sort of way and so he said run with that and so i, I loved this notion of in particular, he was developing this very clever animation technology that would let them have schools of fish on screen. They had this AI system where they would all behave dynamically, which means that each individual fish is an individual AI that is evading predators. They form schools on their own and they created this sort of living entity, like a real sort of aquarium, as it were, with interrelationships of all the various creatures and that sort of thing. And because they were being very clever in their animation, they could have something like 15,000 fish on screen at a time. Well, you know, just these, these bait balls of just explosions of, of animals, which no one had really been able to achieve that on a technical level to that degree. Because normally, if you want to create an animated creature, I don't know if you've ever watched behind the scenes on how they do like computer animation and movies and sort of things where they have to build the equivalent of a digital skeleton that has all the joints. And that's very taxing for the computer to render all that. You know, you look at these big battle scenes on like the Avengers or something where they have all these animated characters. They create all these things and then they'll do an offline rendering of the scene where it might take them a day with the world's top supercomputers to render the scene to be able to watch it. Well, video games have to be able to render these things in real time. 
because you're navigating it. You're inside that space. You're not rendering a thing that you then hit play and watch. And so they had to come up with clever workarounds to make it so that the computer wouldn't just crash. And so seeing just how alive the environment was, I thought, okay, we need a sound that really lends itself toward something just bursting with life. And so for whatever reason, I landed on oboe as kind of my central instrument that I really wanted to be the kind of the core of it all. Kristen Nagus is the name of the musician who I found on YouTube. I collaborate with her on every single score that I do. You know, my most repeat collaborator, you could say. And I initially resisted. I said, I don't want to use any orchestra, no strings, no nothing. And eventually strings and winds made their way back in. But I initially resisted. So I thought, what if it's oboe and just a room full of harps? Because what I loved about harp is that even just one harp can kind of, in a way, It wasn't meant, I'm not a fan of like direct mimicry or musical anagrams as it were, but I thought it is kind of like a school of fish where a harp can do these, you know, these rapid fire, like a bisbiliando or a glissando where one musician can create a million notes all in succession where it sounds like one gesture. You know, you think of the sound like a harp can do. Technically, it's just a succession of very short notes. But they can also do these other effects where they're creating, you know, this flurry. And I said, it's, it's kind of like a school of fish. So I thought, what if there's so many of them that you don't really perceive any individual notes? You just perceive this mass of sound like a beehive. Beehive is one thing, but it's not, right? It's a million bees. And so I landed on this notion of seven harps. Of course, afterward, I realized I, I had completely forgotten the Bernard Herman Beneath the 12 Mile Reef. But it's funny, I had loved that score growing up. I had fallen passionately in love with that score. I went back and listened to it somewhere in the middle of Abzu. I had that epiphany like, oh, right. You know, there's there's kind of, an, a, kind of a precedent for large groups of harps in aquatic narratives. And so I went back and listened to it and I was like, oh, this is absolutely nothing like what I'm doing. As it is, his use of the harps, his conception of how to use that color is totally different, which was kind of a relief because I remember thinking, oh, crap, I think I subconsciously absorbed that score and then forgot about it. And then the only other component was that there's this mystical aspect of the game where it feels it's, it's heavily based around the text of the Enuma Elish, which is a Akkadian text from ancient Babylonia that constitutes the world's oldest creation mythology. The Enuma Elish describes how the world was formed, and it's the oldest known written record of humans trying to explain where we all come from. And many aspects of the book of Genesis appear to be very inspired by the Enuma Elish because it follows a very similar, like, things rising out of the ocean. And so this game was, in a way, an homage to the Enuma Elish, and I loved, I loved the idea of having a choir in the game of all women and and tenors. So it's very top heavy, no low men singers and a small group as well. It's only 18 singers. You know, it's not some big giant epic choir singing the actual words in Akkadian of the Enuma Elish to complement it all. So it became about playing with those ingredients. And, and of course, the game was just so amazing that it gave me all these wonderful opportunities for fast, adventurous moments and then really quiet, meditative moments and then occasional, even sort of scary moments and, and really emotionally earnest. And Matt was just like, just kept saying, just go for it, just go for it, just go for it. It was, a, it was an amazing experience. And Pathless, you know, same company, same creative director as Pathless and equally wonderful yet again. He's just a fantastic person to work with.
Now you've just mentioned Pathless, your latest game release, and that's what we're going to talk about right now. Now Pathless has two, not one, but two completely separate soundtrack releases. How did this situation come about? Well, that was just one of those because I am not a fan of indulgently long soundtrack albums. I like, you know, it's funny, as a kid growing up, I would get these 30-minute Verez albums, and then you'd go watch the movie, and you realize, oh, there's a bunch of music not on here. And like this little 15-year-old fanboy, I'd be all incensed and going, how dare they? I want to hear the rest. And of course, I had no idea about union rules and all that kind of stuff, which was a big part of that. But I also later, especially as I developed friendships with people like Kenny Hall, who was Jerry's music editor and, and Bob Townsend and all the various folks who've spent a lot of time doing that before I ever had the opportunity to make my own, I would hear stories. Jerry, for example, you know, they would, they would work to try to make the album something that felt like an album. So they would move cues out of order. They would combine cues that didn't necessarily go together in the movie because they thought it, it was a more interesting listening experience outside of the film. And, you know, initially I thought, well, that's crazy. I, I want to hear it how it was intended. And I found myself very resistant to that. Or things like when Hans Zimmer included Anthony Hopkins voice on the album to Hannibal. And, if, and initially I was like, well, that's bullshit. I want to I want to just hear the music. And then as soon as I started making my own albums from my own scores, I, I understood immediately why all these things were happening, because when you write it for the film or you write it for the game or TV show or whatever, you have a very specific idea in mind of what constitutes it working, what constitutes success in this situation. Sometimes all a cue needs is, you know, just literally character walks in and I go and you're like, scene's done. It's all I need. Well, that's a boring thing to listen to on an album. So you cut that cue. Because it's just, I think, who wants to listen to that? I don't want to listen to that. And I'm not interested in putting out track 16 that goes, so I started becoming, and and then especially once I became obsessed with interactive music, I realized the problem is actually a hundred times more complicated because there isn't even some canon version of the cue. The whole point of interactive music is that every time you play the game, it plays back a little differently. And depending on how it's designed, it might play back wildly differently from one player to another. So then you have to figure out, okay, well, now what I'm doing is not just sort of trying to curate what I think is the best, but I'm actually subjectively taking the Legos out of the box and making a thing and saying, I'm going to ship you a sculpture made out of the Legos. But if you buy the box, i.e. the video game, you might end up with a very different outcome that you like better. Sorry, that's just kind of how that goes. So Journey was the first time I experienced just how subjective the assembly of these albums can be when the score is very interactive. And I spent something like six weeks trying to make a soundtrack album that I liked. Cause I remember the first time I just took the cues and I kind of slapped them together and I burned it onto a CD and I drove around in my car listening to the CD. I hated it. I thought this is the worst score anyone has ever written in all of human history. It is so boring. It is so dull the few moments that are interesting are over in a heartbeat. And so I started to edit it and really change it. And I started to create versions of, of the music that you can't actually ever hear in game. Like, for example, there might be a moment where you hear the orchestra and there's some harp underneath. But I thought, I, I wonder if it sounds nice if I extract the harp and it's harp alone. And then we add in the orchestra as a response without the harp. In the game, they all play together. But now I've created something new out of it. And it was like, you know what? As a listening experience, just to sit back, 
This, I think, is more interesting. This sounds like it ebbs and flows, but it functions so differently in the game that you would never... And of course, if you just play the game and then you go and listen, you don't realize you're hearing something different from what you heard. So I started to really embrace the idea that albums are heavily curatorial, if that word exists. I wanted them to be their own subjective experience, and I also wanted them to never be one second longer than they needed to be. The real test of that came on Assassin's Creed Syndicate, where I wrote, like I said, something like three and a half hours of score, and I thought, no way in hell am I releasing a three and a half hour score album. That's awful. And so I went and I meticulously, and I just cut mercilessly, and I made my way down to about 90 minutes, I remember, before I thought, okay, every cue here tells some story. And of course, I'm also editing the crap out of them, like I was just talking about with Journey. But I, wa- I managed to get it down to what felt like a reasonable, it's still a long album, but at least every cue had something to say different from every other cue. I felt, it, I could be wrong, of course. I, as I get further distance, I go back and I listen to things. And I go, oh, I probably could have cut that, could have cut that, could have cut that. I, I was being too delicate. I was, I'm even more merciless now. And so in the case of Pathless, that one kind of broke the the system because again, there was something like three hours worth of score. It's also very interactive and it's very subjective how you play the game for how it plays back for you. So I found myself going, all right, I know there's a lot I can cut. Pathless is also an interesting game where you can openly explore. You just wander the forest and the music is designed to stretch and stretch and stretch so that as you explore, it never really repeats itself. So I knew a lot of players are going to hear something very meditative for long periods of time. But I also wrote these big climactic showdowns that are really, really aggressive and bombastic. And if you listen to it in the game, it works because in the game, you know, there's a buildup, you're doing things, you're obviously trying to solve puzzles. And so even when the music is meditative, you know, you're engaged and then a big exciting thing comes up and bam, I'm ready for it. Well, if you're just listening, what it ends up doing is it feels like meditative, 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 hard left turn into chaos. And it was like, that's terrible. I hate that. So I thought I got to cut huge amounts so that these big battle scenes feel like they're at a regular cadence that's very natural and very organic. The result of which, though, was that I left a giant amount of music on the floor. And I thought there are some players that I bet are going to really like the meditative aspect of this game even more than the big, bombastic, exciting parts. I have so much of this material left over, I could release an album that cuts all of the bombastic stuff out and is just pure, I even literally ended up calling it meditations. It's all the tranquility kind of material and none of the of the rest. Because that was all the stuff that I cut. There's no, I didn't cut off the album any of the the big showdowns, you know. I used that stuff in its entirety. And so I, I thought an album that cuts that and and becomes purely about the meditative moments could be quite nice. And the funny thing is, I kind of thought this might happen, but I, I, I bet there's a, a narrow majority that really prefer the second album. They're like, because it's so much closer to their experience of what they think of the game as since you play for 10 hours and nine hours of that is spent exploring and wandering. And only one hour of that is spent in these elaborate fights.
And that track was Cernus from the 2020 game The Pathless, with original score composed by our guest, Austin Wintry. And if you want to know what else has been played on today's show, please look on the show's webpage on cinematicsound.net. We've also now come to the end of part one of this interview with Austin Wintry. I leave you with music from the other Pathless album, which Austin has mentioned, Pathless Meditations, with the track entitled Shoreline. Thank you for joining us once again. I do hope you enjoyed the first part of this interview. Please join us again soon for part two of our special interview with Austin Wintry. But until then, for me, Jason Drury, is take care, stay safe, and happy listening.
Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the program, and David Cosina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate the show and write a brief review. Reviews help introduce potential listeners to the show. And while you're at it, head over to Tee Public to get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net.